to the DIY Animation Show, where we get to the heart of what it means to be an independent animator. I'm Lauren Morse. And I'm Jessica Dahl. Together with our guests, we'll explore tips, tricks, the psychological, the fundamental, and above all, how to make whatever you can with whatever you've got. From the keys to the breakdowns and everything in between. The timing's right to do it yourself. Let's get rolling! How did that happen? I don't know. I think it had, I think 2018 had to go by. <laughs> I think maybe we might be at the age where all the years just start blending into each other a little bit. So now it's all just like one big year in a way. Maybe maybe we are beings that are separate to time and space. Ooh. We transcend the mortal realm of time. Who needs time when you have animation? <laughs> that made no sense. animation since animation is time maybe we're just masters of time because we're animators oh maybe so that's why time passes differently oh if you want to become a true time lord just become an animator (laughs) oh my gosh it's so it's a perk of the industry that they don't tell you until you get into it it's pretty sweet (laughs) yeah it's one of the industry's best kept secrets Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's true Anywho, we hope you all had a really, really good holiday season yes. and that the new year is treating you really well. Mm-hmm. We hope all of your 2019 dreams come true. Yeah. <laughs> well, we are here continuing season three and we have a new guest for you today. The amazing Colin Bird, creator of the action-packed animated webcomic The Crimson Fly. Originally debuting in 2015, The Crimson Fly is an examination of just what it means to be a superhero. As well, it's an ambitious combination of two of the great visual narrative forms, comics and, of course, animation. As you'll soon see, Colin is indefatigable at his core and been industrious from the start of the comic's journey, meeting any obstacle this unique art form throws his way with full gusto. Speaking of obstacle, the most recent one that Colin ran into has been the demise of ActionScript 3 and the shift he's had to make to HTML5. When he discovered that the Crimson Fly was no longer supported in its existing format, Colin, in full Colin fashion, set about to fully revamping the comic, from visuals all the way down to coding, and so much more. And he is looking forward to the comic's grand re-release in the very near future. Yeah, we've actually been treated to a sneak peek of this revamp, and it is looking absolutely fantastic. It's awesome. I love it. He's just leveled up like 50 times. <laughs> so good. Mm-hmm. Can't wait. I didn't think the animation could get any crisper yes. and flow even more and it's engaging. So needless to say, I think we're both super stoked to see it all come together. Yes. <laughs> oh man. And we will be sharing this link to the sneak peek at the end of today's episode. So stay tuned. Yes. 
So today with Colin, we talk about the origin and evolution of the Crimson Fly. Negotiating and creating an intuitive animated reading experience for the audience of your animated webcomic. Colin gives us a thorough overview of his entire process for making his animated comic. We also discuss Colin's social promo process. And he describes how limitation is in fact the mother of creativity. As a quick note, while the process Colin describes for making his comic is based on ActionScript 3, it still contains an abundance of ridiculously useful step-by-steps and provides his own unique insight into creating an animated comic. So despite the tech being slightly out of date, it's still really good. Mm-hmm. Or you could say out of date tech, but timeless techniques. Oh, oh. I love it. <laughs> You guys are going to have fun. We sure did. So with all that in mind, let's dive in headfirst into the interview. Let's go. So Colin, the Crimson Fly, we have really, really been enjoying it. Uh, It's awesome. (laughs) Could you give us a synopsis of what it's about? So it's essentially this teenage superhero. He realizes that he has superpowers and he thinks, well, what would my comic book heroes do? Well, they'd become superheroes too. And he's starting to slowly learn that um, superheroing doesn't work the way that it should work. The idea, and it's basically born of a lot of questions that I've always had about superheroes, such as if Peter Parker can't afford his rent, can't afford to pay um, for his own lunch, has to give money to his aunt every weekend. How does he make that wonderful spandex onesuit? <laughs> How does that work? So for the Crimson Fly, he literally wears a hoodie that I have that I thought would be really cool. That I was like, oh man, if I had a superhero costume, that's what I would wear. Oh, that's cool. And so that's essentially what he wears is that red and black hoodie with the with the goggles and the ski mask. And it's a lot of basically just me asking a lot of questions about superheroes and thinking, hmm. Well, how would that actually go? But not in a dark deconstructionist way. I want it to still be fun. Mm-hmm. So not in the way where like at the end of issue one where he gets arrested, spoilers, where it's like <laughs> and then that's the end of it. And he and then that's the end of the story. And he just magically appears at the uh, at the beginning, having gotten out of jail. It's like, no, it's fun. He, he gets arrested. Sure. But then he breaks himself out. And then at the end, he's still stuck in the handcuffs because he never actually got the keys to break them. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> oh, lots of fun moments like that. Just like, I think, I forget uh, who said it. It's either Kurt Busiek or um, Alex, uh, I forget the name of the guy, but it's like the point of deconstruction is to take it apart so you can put it back together again. And so that's sort of what I want to do. Even though I'm realizing I'm like 20 years late on a, a lot of deconstruction stuff where it's like, oh, well, what if the police didn't like uh, Batman? Frank Miller did it first. What if he didn't really understand how all his powers worked? X-Men did that first. Well, what if there was a black Spider-Man? Marvel did that first. Wait, when did that happen? A year ago. <laughs> no! <laughs> oh, man, that's great. But then it's like there's always room for that stuff, too, regardless. And you have just like a really fresh take on everything. Just, mm. if anything, just with the tone of it, for that matter. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's, it's what I'm, one of the things I always tell my students is, because it's something I learned myself, it's not so much the originality of the idea it's the originality of the execution of that idea. So, like, five guys might all tell the same story, but what's unique about it is how they all tell the story. So, like, Zach, um, Zach Snyder might tell it with lots of slow motion. Michael Bay might tell it with lots of explosions. Mm-hmm. Um, Louis C.K. might do a lot of, wait, that's kind of weird jokes. 
And then Chris Rock, just everybody would be this sort of self-aware, angry, uh, yeah. It would just be kind of weird jokiness. Uh-huh. So it's all it's not so much about what story you're telling as how you're telling that story. And so that lets me get over a lot of the whole, well, what if somebody's done this first, but they've never done it the way I've done it? I see what you did there, brain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is great. That is spot on, I think. So yeah, but it's, it's also something that's kind of frustrating at the same time, too, because... Um, the way I see it, I'm not really doing anything that hasn't been done, that that can't have been done before. And I think that's where like, we were talking earlier about technology getting away from us, mm-hmm. is that, like, I work in um, Adobe Flash CS6, but really the things that I'm doing could have been done in Flash CS2, for, for that matter, because, like, it's all it is is just basically the code telling, okay, go here and stop. Go here and stop. Okay, now go back to this place and play from that point, and then go in and stop. And it's not really so much any sort of weird coding wizardry as just playing with the timeline. And it's kind of frustrating because I'm thinking, well, wait, why hasn't somebody done this before? And there have been actually, and that's not to say that this is the first, um, there have been a few animated comics. Like um, Ryan Woodward, right around the time when I started thinking about doing Crimson Fly, he had an app on the Apple Store called Bottom of the Ninth, and it was an animated comic book. It's so cool. I know, right? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. I remember he was on, oh, there's one page in particular where it's like the pitcher is throwing a ball and just like the way that everything plays out. I'm like, oh, it's so good. (laughs) Oh, man. And everything just builds up to that one moment. And you're just like, whoa. Mm-hmm. It accentuates or, all of that action in there. And just like, and everyone's like emotion and it's so engaging, it pulls you in and ugh. Oh, so good. And then mm-hmm. um, also um, uh, Bobby Chu, he, he had a studio, I think Imaginism, I forget what it was, but they did a book called uh, Nico and the Sword of Light. And uh, that was also on the app store. And it's weird because it's, it's different from um, uh, Bottom of the Ninth in that the panels don't all start out on page. Which I think is a is unfortunately a flaw of uh, Bottom of the Ninth is well where do you start how does the animation work with Nico and the Sword of Light they basically take that out of your hands it just starts off with here's a single panel click the panel basically the animation sort of plays out in its own right and you just kind of just watch act like a sort of a movie but in a comic format and it's really cool uh-huh. and so those were like well hmm, could I do something like that and that's what I did my graduate thesis on it was a sort of a pilot episode of the crimson fly that's so cool so that's amazing so the crimson fly started as a graduate thesis film then wow. oh yeah well it's something i've been sitting on for like a very long time like even back when i was at in my undergrad um where we had a sculpture class and i was like well hmm, i'm gonna draw this i'm gonna do this this um spider-man character but since spiders are already taken i'm gonna use flies instead and because he's, he's got wings, he's not going to wear a shirt and he's going to have dreads and he's going to wear these weird like Sonic shoes because I'm into Sonic the Hedgehog. I love Sonic. Yeah. And then um, a few years later, I was in graduate school and I'm like, well, okay, let's revamp the character. And I wonder if I can use it for my graduate thesis because I was going to do the comic by myself anyway. And I pitched, the way I pitched it to my thesis committee was, well, okay, I'm going to make a movie that talks about doing both animation and comics because I can't actually pick one or the other. I want to do both. So what if you could do both? And I'm going to do a movie that showcases the panel structure, so sort of like the cutscenes from Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker. And then on the side, I'm going to do my comic. And they're like, well, if you make a movie, it's not going to be really proving your point. So I'm like, well, on the side, I was actually going to do this comic, but if you're saying it's okay, I'm going to use that for my graduate thesis. And I'm like, yeah, go right ahead. And that was how that was born. Wow. That's amazing. So you'd, you'd always intended that The Crimson Fly would be an animated webcomic from the start, would you say? 
Well, I intended for it to be a webcomic. The animated part just came afterwards. Right. Because I was just like, I, I can't pick. It's like, it can't be animated because I don't have a team. And I'm not going, I don't really feel comfortable asking people for this, to do this thing for free that may or may not pan out. But I also want to do comic stuff. And so what if I could mash them? And so that's how that happened. Um, one of my professors, a guy named uh, Michael Jancy, he does a webcomic called The Norm. And what he did is he put the panels on YouTube with uh, sound effects. So it became what he calls uh, these videos, wherein the idea is that the panels play out with just enough time for you to read them. And then they go to the next panel. It's like, well, what if there's not enough time? It's like, there's a pause button on YouTube. You can do that. And we're like, <sighs> right. <laughs> so did you, did you kind of have an idea of how you would accomplish making an animated webcomic when you started? Or did you just kind of blaze forward, throw caution to the wind, and just dive into it. Oh, I had no idea how I was going to do it. Um, <laughs> like, what it initially started off as was um, the actual, because you know how, like, inside the comic, they're, they're animated. Mm. And so, like, the, like the characters move and stuff. That's not actually how it started. It started off with a uh, Christmas story, where in each panel, would there would just be a single panel. Then it would explode to be two panels then three panels, then four panels, and then that would be the strip. Oh, that's and you, awesome. Wow. And um, there, was no, there was no animation inside. It was just me playing with the Flash action script and just making it go back and forth. And so I was working on that, and then I got my, and then I saw, started looking at uh, Nico and the Sword of Light and Bottom of the Ninth, as per Professor Jancy's uh, suggestion. And so I was like, whoa, these can be animated. So then that one went back to the drawing board. And then um, what ended up happening is I would have the entire strip laid out, and there'd be animation inside the strip, but people would just like look at the art and think, oh, this is cool. And then click the next one. They're like, no, 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 no. There's animation. You have to hit the panel. And they're like, that is not intuitive at all. Right. So then I, I did a play button inside the panel and people were still skipping. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Go back, go back, go back, go back. <laughs> and they're like, well, that's not intuitive at all. So that's how the, the play, next, skip, rewind buttons came to be a thing. Because in uh, Nico and the Sword of Light and in Bottom of the Ninth, because you're, you get to them through the app store and you buy them as an app, you're expected to think of them as apps. Mm. Whereas if you're reading it online on a comic and somebody just hands you a piece of artwork, then they're thinking, oh, that's a cool panel. Is there any more to it? Well, you have to hit the button. What button? Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, then if you just like have a single panel and there's a play button underneath it, then you, you, you have no choice. You have to just hit play. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it, it really puts kind of the control back in the hands of the reader as well. Almost like you are turning the pages of a comic book. Exactly. As you would in real life. Yeah. And that's what I was going for because... Um, one of the, th the big questions that came up when I was doing my thesis paper was, okay, well, so then what's the difference between this and a video game or a movie? Mm. And I'm thinking, oh, those are tough questions. It just is, man. It just is. <laughs> but that's not something you can write on the paper. And, the, the, and I'm not sure this is quantifiable yet because I'm, I'm not really a philosopher. But, um, and I think this actually goes into something I would talk about later. But... With movies, there's no control mm. over the over what you're seeing. What plays out has to play out, and you you don't get a choice. You don't get to stop it. And that's the difference between a comic and a movie, is that the uh, in a comic the reader has control over the pacing. Basically, the page doesn't turn until it until uh, until you turn the page. The characters can say on screen there is five minutes left. But until you turn that page, until your eyes read that information and take it in and process it and say, okay, five minutes left, those, those five minutes stretch out forever. Mm. Readers have control of the pacing in comics, whereas they don't in movies. But the difference between the comic 
and in a video game is that with a video game you have control over everything you have control over the pacing you even to a certain to a limited extent have control over the narrative we're getting better about that but the only reason mario gets to the end beats bowser gets his cake and doesn't have to suffer a game over is because you as a player decide to if you so choose mario can die in the first world and that's the end of the story that's it Players have control, however limited, over the narrative in video games. And I think that's, that's something that um, both the Metal Gear Solid and also Undertale is a good example of this, of uh, where players have control of the narrative. Whereas with an animated comic, at least um, the, in the vein of The Crimson Fly or um, Bottom of the Ninth or Nico and the Sword of Life, all we have control of is the pacing. The Crimson Fly doesn't, like, the ending doesn't change depending on um, no matter what the reader does. Mm. Even if you get to the end, you can't just suddenly decide, oh, well, he got arrested and that's the end of the story. It's like, no, the story ends with him breaking out, catching the car thief, and then that's the end of the story. It doesn't change. So that was finding that happy medium was was really hard. And it's one of those weird things with like when people ask you challenging questions, because you think, ah, oh, I don't like that, I don't like that question. But then you have to think about it. I'm like, I like the answer I came to because of that question. Yeah. That was really good. Mm-hmm, completely. That's the importance too of uh, of searching for the answers to those hard questions because then you you I, f- I feel like you uh, you uncover a lot of stuff that mm. that feels inherent, but as you're unpacking it, you're like, there's so much to this that yeah yeah. And that that's actually been the hardest thing about making this is that there's there are no guidelines because nobody else is doing it, which kind of makes me sad because I'm like, there is somebody out there who is smarter who is a better programmer, who is a better illustrator, better artist, animator, can do sound design, all that jazz. There's somebody out there willing to be inspired by this and then they're going to make it better. And then I'm going to see it and then I'm going to make mine better. And it's going to be the sort of like this creative arms race that betters the medium because people are like, huh, what if I did that? Mic drop. <laughs> End of interview. Wait, boom. <laughs> that's it. Oh, no, that's so true though. But like, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm just really grateful that your thesis worked out in the way of where it's like, hey, you know, why can't we combine these two things? Because you you need those people like yourself, Colin, to say, you know, like, yeah, to say, like, why can't we do this? Why can't we try it like this? Mm. And it seems like you really adapt to to everything that comes your way in terms of the intuitiveness of the interactivity and just having to uh, adapt with that and like adding like the play button and the rewind button. Do you think that that maybe like that's a key in there is just being open to adaptability? Like, oh, so much. So much. But yeah, it's all about adaptability. So so when you added in the animation, for example, like with foreshadowing, I think it's really cool that even with motion that you can still obscure something. So it's still like a really cool thing to come back. And um, what it yeah. is, is it's, it's different thought processes and also different educations. Like nobody's going to read everything the same way, mm. like as everyone else. Yeah. It's being as obvious as you can without outright saying, Look at this. Look at this hint. Look at this clue. Do you think there's anything that helps? Or what is it that can help you keep it subtle, but still have enough impact so that when you look back later, you're like, oh, he totally included that in there. Um, It's weird because like I just separate my brain into, well, how do I read it versus how do I make it? And this weird thing I think that's come across from just going to art school is like you learn to read and see things differently. And you think, okay, as a viewer... I don't like that because it makes me feel sad. But as a content creator, I totally understand why they always lose the bad guy up up until literally the last minute when they could easily stop him because otherwise then the story would be over. You have to get to that last point. 
going back to Metal Gear, because Metal Gear is always my favorite example of these things. Every act in the in the in the game, you almost get to the point of stopping Metal Gear. And then, but you never do until the very end when it's the final boss. Because of course, if you got to stop it before you got to the final boss, then there would be no game and you would and you wouldn't get as much of an emotional release. So as a player, I'm thinking, ah, oh, why snake? Why can't you just grenade it while you're looking at it right now? But as a <laughs> as a player, I'm like, oh, I see what they did there. They made me mad. And that is brilliant. <laughs> and that's how I, I try and go through it with pacing, with uh, composition, with uh, timing, with animation dialogue. Is how would I enjoy it as a reader? And I, have, I don't think I've quite gotten there with the dialogue yet. But for the most part, I think everything else is starting to slowly fall into place. Yeah. 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 Man, actually, speaking of all that, let's go ahead and start talking about like how you plan for all of this. Because again, especially because you animated content and then it's a webcomic on top of that mm -hmm. and two seemingly very different styles. So we're really curious, how does planning your still comics differ from planning out your animated ones? Oh, there's actually no difference. They're very much integrated. If uh, basically the still comics act essentially as concept art for the, um, and sometimes to a certain extent storyboards for the animated comics. Oh, nice. What ends up happening is uh, actually, actually, just I could just run through my entire process. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. Sure. Thank you. So um, it starts off with for the volume. It starts off with okay, what is the theme of this particular story? So for volume one, it's it's okay to make mistakes as long as you learn from them and you improve on that, improve on the mistakes that you make. So in volume one, he learns not to, and not volume one, issue one, he learns to not trust the cops. But in, so in issue two, that means that he decides, well, screw the cops. I'm just going to get out of here. You guys deal with it. And then issue three, he decides, well, this has never worked out, so I'm not going to call the cops. But then he finds out, oh, shoot, I should have called the cops because they're actually trained to deal with this. And then in issue four, he can put them all together and thinks, okay, well, I'm going to call the cops and give them their chance to stop this fire or to call the firefighters, call the emergency services. And because, because it's an animated comic and there has to be a story, he decides, well, oh, shoot, it's been 10 minutes. They're not here. People are dying. Now I can get involved. And so he learns that process. So what ended up happening is I take that idea and then I develop a one paragraph synopsis. And that each, each sentence of that synopsis basically becomes the main sort of bullet point for an issue. So then take those, those bullet points, break those down into further bullet points, and then suddenly I have an, uh, a, an issue synopsis, more or less. Nice. Once it's done from there, I take each bullet point in that um, issue synopsis and basically flesh it out and say, think, okay, panel one, two, three, four, this has to happen. And usually it starts with the very last panel where it's like, okay, what's the cliffhanger slash punchline? Because that's how I structure my strips. It's basically the first panel is info dump. This is what happened last time, or this is what you need to know to appreciate the joke going forward. Right. Then panel two is the buildup to that to that punchline, because um, that's what a joke is. Is basically it's a it's a you take a situation, you escalate it, and then instead of giving people what they expect is going to happen, then you give them something completely different, but still still slightly logical if your joke is good. So um, you have to start with the first panel, which is the info dump. The second panel, which is the buildup. The third panel, which is either the punchline or a big piece of information. And then, and that can also be merged with the last panel, which is either the sort of um, release or it's a cliffhanger that says, okay, you like that bit, now turn the page. 
or come back next week. Mm-hmm. So so every strip, I break it down. It's like panel one, two, three, four, and sometimes five or six. I try not to go above six panels because that usually gets very cluttered, especially for a strip. Strips are really great like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so once I've got my my synopsis for the, the, uh, for the strip, what I end up doing is I either do a thumbnail or I do the script. Um, mostly because when I was doing them in undergrad, when I was doing... Um, practice comics in undergrad, what ended up happening is I would draw all the artwork and then there would be no room for dialogue. And I think, and then the characters would speak very strangely because they couldn't, there was no room. So it's like, why do they speak like that? Because there was no room. That, that's not a good plan. So then I started doing scripts at first and then thumbnails, but then it would, there would be such an amount of time between the script that I wrote and the uh, actual um, time that I did the thumbnails that I'm like, wait, what was I thinking when I wrote this? This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so I generally try to do this, both the script and the thumbnails at the same time if I can. And sometimes if it's very dialogue heavy and I, I know that there's not really, there's a very slim range of, uh, of compositions that I can use for the, for the visuals, then I'll do the script first. But if it's very action heavy and very visually intensive, then I'll do the thumbnail first and then just kind of slot in what sort of di- whatever dialogue feels natural. Like the characters don't talk while they fight because... They've, that you just nobody has the attention span for that unless you actually have superpowers. <laughs> um, so then once my script is done, then I um, I start and my script and my thumbnails are done. I take it into Flash and on top of the and because Flash is is a very awesome program. On top of the either in the next frame over and using onion skins, I do the panels or in the in another in another layer, I will do the do separate panels. And what's great about Flash is that they have these things called these mini compositions called symbols. I'm, I mean, I'm not sure if you guys know that. That's great. If your audience doesn't know that, then hey, we're all learning something new. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. So um, Flash has these sort of mini compositions called symbols, and you can have either graphic symbols, which basically play out along the timeline, or movie clips, which essentially are there to basically be interactive. If you don't put any interactivity into the movie clips, they just play automatically. But if you do, if you program them, then suddenly they become sort of like mini apps in their own right. But basically, that's how it is. You put the panels inside these little mini compositions, and you, and then I do my art on top of that. And what's great about doing my static art like that is that then it allows me to set up things that I don't have to I don't have to do later. Like I don't have to do backgrounds later because I just pick and choose the layers from the static portions and then put them in the animated portions. That's really um, economical. Thank you. Yeah. And then, um, and then the same thing with the characters. What I'm learning to do instead is instead of just drawing it straight up, it's like, okay, well, here's the inks on top of it. Here's the 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 white fill underneath it, and then that's it. Boom, characters are done. What I started doing now is I started putting them together in pieces. So here's the character's legs. Here's the character's arm. Here's the character's jacket. Here's the character's face and hair. And they're all going to be not on separate layers, but they're going to be um, separate compositions called groups. Because you can put symbols on top of symbols on top of symbols, and that's how flash animation works, is that usually an entire character is built up of these little mini symbols, but with groups, you can just, you don't have to clutter up your library. So each character is made up of these uh, of these mini symbols, and they're just drawn out the way that they would be if they were static. But the cool thing is that what that allows me to do later is then I can, I don't have to redraw everything from scratch when I go into animation, I can just move pieces around and redraw as necessary. That's nice. Mm. Really fast to clarify with the groups. Do you mean mm-hmm. like um like group layers, like parenting different layers with a different drawing element on each one of those within like a big like parent group layer, or do you mean something different like uh, grouping everything in a library together? Oh, this is actually different from that. Okay. Um, 
Because in Flash, the grouping that you're talking about is uh, is usually handled in folders. And, like, they're specifically called folders as opposed to, like, in Photoshop where they're actually they're called groups. Mm-hmm. But in Flash, what you can do is, for those who you want to learn at home, Control-G, it puts everything that you have selected into a group. And a group is basically like a, like a graphic symbol, except it doesn't have a timeline. Oh, okay. I gotcha. I gotcha. I gotcha. I gotcha. Oh, so, cool. if, um, so if you've actually used Toon Boom, the animation software Toon Boom, it's basically how, sort of like that, oh. essentially. But Flash didn't tell anybody about it, so I didn't find out about it until like 10 years into my Flash career. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that was a fun discovery, too. Just like, what? Oh, hello. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so that was a fun. But what ends up happening is then, okay, so I have my static comic where there is the backgrounds I can use for animation and the characters that are essentially posed out in their starting poses, more or less. Once that's done, then I take the static comic, and of course I've exported it into the different formats. So there's the one for Tumblr, there's the one for Blogger, there's the one for Stochastic, and that's all that that's all rearranged and set up. And I've also got my thumbnails for my uh, for the for YouTube and social media. Actually, that's something else to get into. But um, mm-hmm. once I've done I've done promoing all of that stuff, then I go and take the static comic, put it in the animation symbol. Break the break the entire thing down into layers and get rid of the uh, the extra sketches that are underneath it. Put all the panels on their own separate layers, and then I go through and do the interior animation for all the for all the comics. So then I would go in and then I'd put the the all the dialogue on separate layers and then animate that. Then I'd have the character. I go through in each individual character and I would animate them according to well, actually, I wouldn't animate them. What I would first do is I would do a rough animation. Basically, if showing how they interact and how they play out, and then take that rough animation, uh, convert it into a symbol, and then go on top of it with my with my puppets and just sort of like pose pose out what I can, and then redraw what's necessary. Because um, puppets are sort of like three D animation in that way, like the early three D where people would like, man, that animation's really bad, and people would say, well, yeah, because it's because it's three D. Three D is not very good. And then Toy Story happened, and Toy Story was good. Mm-hmm. And, oh, you're right. <laughs> and so as more and more and more that we're finding out that two and two D and three D are not really that different. Like you go, like if you look into Wreck It Ralph, there's a bunch of pencil tests for King Candy online that are in two D. If you look up Tangled, there's a bunch of pencil tests by Glenn Keane mm-hmm. that they're in two D. Frozen, Paper Man, a whole bunch of them. And it's the same thing with puppets, where people were at the beginning, where people weren't really trained animators, and they were just playing with the toys, and they didn't really know how to, to animate. They're just like, oh, well, I'm going to make it with puppets, and it's going to be so much easier to uh, to animate than just actually drawing it and making it look good. Well, what ends up happening is then you get that sort of weird, janky... Uh, I hate, to, I hate to, to, be a, to be a downer on Newgrounds, but you get that sort of Newgrounds Flash animation. That's where Flash got its reputation for being really bad in, anim- in animation, because people weren't using the tools right. So what I do is I do a rough animation first, and then I pose out my puppet to make it to work as best it can with the animation that I've drawn. And what I'm learning now is that you have to redraw essentially what doesn't exist. So if there's a head turn and the character is facing backwards and now they have to face forward, well, instead of trying to like make figures and make things that don't work, try and work, it's that you get that sort of weird janky animation. Mm-hmm. Instead, I just redraw the head entirely and that's its own symbol. And suddenly now it's very smooth. You see that a lot with um, this animation studio, Titmouse. They do a lot of different series, but the most recent thing that I've watched is a Turbo Fast, the one with the snails. Yeah, the snails. yeah, yeah. So it's on Netflix, and you look at their animation, and it's both really smooth, but it's also very consistent. Mm. And so that's what I'm trying to shoot for. So once I'm done with all my animation, 
then I go back in and then I add the programming. So for things that have to replay, then that becomes its own symbol where it's replaying the animation. And then on the different points of the timeline, then it goes, uh, then I say, okay, when you get to frame four, which is where the strips almost always start, stop. And then give the reader a choice. Either you can either skip to the next panel that where there's nothing happening, or you can play out what's going on in sequential order. And sometimes they're the same thing, but the, the important thing is to have that choice. So the reader hits play, and then the animation plays along the timeline as it's supposed to. And I'm actually pantomiming the fingers walking across on my desk. <laughs> but they, uh, the animation plays out across the timeline. And then it gets to the next point where the, the action trip says stop. And everything stops. And then readers are given a choice. You can either play to the next um, bit of an, uh, interactivity. You can skip directly to the next bit of interactivity. Or you can rewind to the last bit. And so it go. And also, while you're at this new at this new stopping point, you can also inside its own symbol, you can replay the stuff that you've already seen. And again, it's giving people the choice to to read how they want to read because that's another thing that comics have that's uh, unique to comics versus movies is that you can go back and re rewind and reread things, and that does not interrupt the pacing because it's like a book, where a book like you like just because you've gotten to page fifty six doesn't mean you can't go back to page. 26 and reread back to page 56. There's nothing, nobody's saying you can't do that. Mm. And so it should be with an animated comic. You should be able to go back and redo things if you want to, but not in the same way as a video game. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's great. So once the interactivity is programmed in and it's got everything, no, everything goes to the same panels and I've play tested it enough that I'm like, okay, all the buttons work, all the animation plays out as it's supposed to. And that's actually the most intensive part because with coding, it's like, if I test it, I have to test everything. And if one thing breaks, then at the base level, if one thing breaks, then everything breaks. But then you get these problems where, like, I entered the code wrong. So instead of going to the right panel, it goes to maybe two panels before and then just plays it. Or it doesn't reloop or what have you. So that's always the hardest part because I have, like, by this point, I have maybe about two days before it has to go up and be uploaded. So, like, testing is just... Ah, uh, it's the worst part of it. <laughs> how how do you allot your time for for testing? Do you save like a few days so you can test, or what do you? How do you do that? Um, it's usually about a day because what's great about the strips is because they're so small, there's not as much work to do. Like even uh, having a um eleven by seventeen page would be a lot longer than just doing like four panels. So it's if I start on I start on Monday with the, the thumbnails, on Tuesday is the ink and paint for the static portions, and then Wednesday through Friday is just animation and programming. And so, um, well, assuming I haven't procrastinated and everything's being pushed off until Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> Which has happened. Oh, yes. Um, I can attest yeah. to that. <laughs> Anywho, so yeah, there's usually about a day of both programming and um, and testing. And so once that's done... Then I put it in a, a separate export file because I never work in the, the finished file directly. I usually work on a separate work file, copy the symbol that the that the entire strip has become, put it in a format that looks presentable. So basically the one that has like the Crimson Fly by Skipper Waiting, Volume 2, Story 5, Strip Number 59, all of that jazz. And then that goes into being uploaded. So when you say that you put the, uh, you, like you don't work in the final final and you put it into something else, does that mean that you have like two flash files open at the same time or? What, oh or- no, I only have, I only have one flash file open at a time. Yeah. So because of what, what happens with flash is that, you know how like if you just like in Photoshop or any other program, you hit control C and then if you hit control V in another program, the recipient program tries to import it as best it can. Yeah. So same thing with flash. If you take the grab a symbol and you copy it, and you put it in another flash file, then everything that necessary to run that flash, that, that symbol, 
comes through directly in the in the new file. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Okay. Mm. So I have a template set. So I have like two templates set up, one for working and then one for uh, presentation. And so I just take the what's in the work file and then just plop it in the presentation file. That's nice. Oh, okay. So is that a way of kind of keeping your final presentation file nice and clean? Yep. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that's great. I like that. How does your presentation file differ from your working file in the sense of like, I don't know, how do you have it set up? I'm just I'm just kind of curious about it. Um, actually, let me open it because I feel like I because uh, I have it set up in like I have like templates upon templates upon templates. <laughs> Would so, you make them as needed or did you try to make them like beforehand? Um, I started out trying to make them beforehand and then they just didn't work. So I usually just make them as needed. It's why also why I don't have a, a dedicated Crimson Fly puppet because I never, it's not a static enough comic where I can just make, I can plan for every possible pose. Mm. Instead, I have to just kind of draw them as needed. But when I can, I plan. When I can't, then I just make do. That's cool. So in the in the presentation file, there's four layers. There's an identification update, basically where I put in all the information that people need to know about that particular strip. There's one for the comic information where it's basically like the underline and then it says buy and then underline and then volume, story, all of that jazz. Um, I have a guide layer for where the comic is supposed to go because it doesn't just plop it down in the middle where I need to be. I have to like let, sign, line it up so they all line up in the same spot. Oh, wow. And then there's a layer for specifically for the comic. And then that's just where it goes. And then once that's done, then then that gets exported. And what's interesting is that a lot of this is basically sort of like um, making things as economic as possible because like with the static one, what ends up happening is they have a finished file for the static ones that don't move. And so what ends up happening is it has all the same layers, but when, what I do after that is then I delete all of my guide layers and then save it as is. So that way I have something that can compile into a PDF because a friend of mine told me when he was reading one of my preliminary PDF compilations that all the information gets in the way of a reading experience. So I was like, okay, well, fine, let's get rid of that. Then also while I'm doing that, then I, I change the border from black to white and change the, the background color from black to white as well, save that at 300 DPI, and then suddenly I have a version that I can use for printing. Wow, that's so cool. Nice. And then after that, what I take is I take um, all the, um, the panels and I break it down, um, break down the, 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 the static symbol, break it down so I have all my panels in their own separate um, spaces that I can manipulate stack them from top to bottom, and then now I have something I can put on Topastic, which is like, it's like YouTube for comics. Cool. Yeah. And so it's just basically trying to make things as economic as possible, but while at the same time doing things that I have to do anyway and not going too far out of my way to make any stuff. In that case, does programming and presentation, you getting all that situated, does that occur in the same day? Or is it, again, like programming one day and then final presentation and stuff the next day? Oh, no, that usually goes... Um, I. I am an unfortunate workaholic where I will try and do as much of it as I can in a single day. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then uh, I think the only things that really carry over are the, uh, is really just the animation because the, the, for the, the illustration parts, it's like for doing a strip, it's not, or rather for doing a black and white with hints of color strip, it's not as intensive as like, we'll I have to pick out all my colors and then this character has to have their own color map and it just has to make sense. It's like, nope. Everything's in black and white with a with a few filters on top of it to give you a sense an emotional sense of mood. Mm. Uh-huh. So um, the comic part doesn't take as as long as the animation part for obvious reasons because animation will never not take a long time. It's true. <laughs> true that. <laughs> it's like no matter what advances we make in technology, animation will never not take a long time if you want it to be good. There will never be the animate button. <laughs> no. 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 <laughs> 
wow, that's all so fascinating. You really, oh my goodness. Right? Mm-hmm. You have this all down to a science, dude. This yeah. is so cool. Yeah, now I just need to make money. <laughs> <laughs> the forever search for yeah. uh, independent artists. Yeah. Yep. Oh, well, man. Well, what's great about, well, all of this is going on, with the exception of the presentation parts where I get it ready for presentation, I'm also recording everything that happens as well. I have to do the comics anyway. I have to do them on a computer anyway. Why not just leave it recording and then turn the process of me making comics every week into a speed paint video? Nice. And so then once the video is done, then I, I go to YouTube. There's a, there's a few people who do Creative Commons music. Like I'm very meticulous about not getting music that I might get in trouble for later. Mm. Well, yeah, we saw that on your site that you referenced and credited all of your uh, sound effects people and all your music sources. Which was just a pleasure to see. Yeah, you crediting other artists. That was just that was wonderful. Yeah, um, yeah. Because like, I, I'm an artist. I want credit myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the same time, if I if I help out other people, then they're going to be more likely to help me out, and so on and so forth going forward. We're, we're all in it together. It's true. Yeah. 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 It's about cultivating that kind of community spirit. You know, helping each other along. And plus, what ends up happening is um, is that people actually end up asking, hey, where did you get that song? I'm like, oh, check the description. And what I'm going to start doing is I'm going to start making a point of actually mentioning, well, at least with the music, mentioning it in the actual videos when, with the commentary track mm-hmm. and saying, hey, this music came from here. Go check that out. Like uh, what I currently use is um, there's a channel called Argo Fox, A-R-G-O-F-O-X. And so what they do is they have a ton of Creative Commons music. And so I just like go on, um, look through their videos, find one that that matches the tone of what I want to play, download it. And then all I got to do is just put it in the credits like they asked me to. So I'm like, yeah, just do that. It's not rocket science. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. Well, the problem is that it's it's an internet culturism that we, I think as a culture, not even just like in the U.S., but just like as a whole, if we don't see somebody actually making it or putting in an effort, we just have this weird tendency to assume it just spontaneously happens out of nowhere. Yeah. Like, uh, we don't see the cameraman sitting behind the camera operate. I'm watching um, Henry Cavill act his heart out to Ben Affleck. So we assume, oh, there's no camera. We know in our heads, yes, there's a camera. Yes, there's somebody watching that camera. And yes, there's somebody hitting a stop button. But, in, but emotionally, we're just like, oh, it's just there. And so, like, when people, like, that's actually something, something that people have asked me before. is like, the comics on the on the main page, how come they don't have music? Um, because I'd have to pay somebody to do that? Well, what if somebody just did it for free? No, I would have to pay somebody. That's how this works. Yeah. Like, I, they provide a service. I have to pay for it. That's, that's, just, that's just common decency. Mm-hmm. And so um, I don't know how to work out those prices yet. And even then, for somebody to animate, for do the music, they'd have to do it for that strip then find some way of integrating that into an integrated soundtrack. And that would take about a week for them to figure that out and all of that jazz. So yeah, when I can, I credit people who are, who are making the things that I can't make. And the same thing with like posting pictures on Facebook or um, videos or things like, Hey, here's where I got it. Go back and support the artists because if we do not support each other, what we make will not exist for very long. Mm, that's the truth right there. <laughs> oh wow! Oh man! Yeah. So yeah. So once the video goes online, then that's when things get interesting because then there's there's an entire promotion cycle that has to happen as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because like um um I'm signed up with a channel Frederator for uh, as far as the YouTube network goes. And so they do a lot of uh, online workshops to get people to, uh, or they did, I haven't been, I haven't talked to them in a while, but they did a bunch of online workshops to tell people when the best times are to post your, post your stuff up. Oh, like, cool. like you don't post cool. things up at like uh, at midnight. I mean, you can, if you want to, 
but you shouldn't be surprised that nobody's seeing it because everybody's asleep. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side of the coin that nobody really thinks about, I'm not going to be checking things out at 9.30 in the morning, between 9.30 and 12, because I'm working. I'm at work. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't be on Facebook. So the best time to post is like around between 1 and 3 in the afternoon because then people are at lunch. Oh, they have a bit of that free time that they're like, okay, I can go and relax on YouTube now. Yeah, and exactly. And it's nice. different for different for different social media networks. So like 5 a.m., between 12 and 5 a.m. on Monday, I am posting up the, the actual comic and I'm making sure that all the links work because it's, it's a blog disguised as a comic site. Um, hence the crimsonflycomics.blogspot.com because blogger is free yay so, yay <laughs> the downside is that i have to do most of the editing to make sure that all the links work and go exactly where they're supposed to mm-hmm. so that from somewhere between 12 and 6 in the morning i am posting and uploading it and somehow people are still checking it out either they haven't gone to bed yet or it's the middle of the afternoon for them or what have you there are people in russia who are reading it there are people in egypt who are reading it there are people in um in britain who are reading it everybody's reading it at different times so 5 a.m is the general rule because it's like the earliest point of the day for me then at around um, one in the uh, in the afternoon, I start posting to Facebook and I say, hey, I have a new comic out. Go check it out. I post a animated GIF that I've made beforehand of the animated comic playing out. It's just basically the entire, all the animation played out in a single GIF, but the implication being that if you want to control of the GIF and you want to see it in its full entirety, you have to go to the page. Mm-hmm. What do you think that court would be to make this project manageable? Full disclosure, this wasn't my first attempt at a Crimson Fly webcomic. Oh, cool. But I didn't have a buffer and I didn't have any long-term plan for that for that version. It's it's always it's funny when you're when you're a kid um or when you're younger or less mature, it's always fun to sort of like play things by ear or improvise or make it up as you go along. Or in, in I think film kind of encourages this. Like in uh, like Die Hard with uh, John McClane or Han Solo in uh, Star Wars. Or really any sort of action hero who's sort of who's implied to be making it up as they go along. There's this sort of romanticism of of the quick-witted hero who just makes it up and just kind of does what they can and hopes that it all works out. Yeah. And that's all great, but as term in terms of long-term strategy, you absolutely have to have a plan for, okay, where do I want this to go? And for the Crimson Fly, the long-term goal, spoilers, he dies of old age, happy and content with his life. And what Aww. I want to what I want to do for like the next, like, I don't know, 50 something years, however long it takes me to get to the end of my artistic journey is go through that journey because part of the deconstruction of the Crimson Fly is that most superheroes, we, we never see that full progression of they start out as a teenager, they become a young adult and they realize that they have responsibilities. As an adult, they realize that the way that they did things as children was immature and they have to find a better way. And then as more mature adults, they start families and they have responsibilities that, that come up with having a, an adult life, a married life. Or whatever the whatever your path your life takes, you don't you don't suddenly become boring just because you've turned thirty five. And I think there's a romanticism with youth that we we don't we don't realize that we have. Like older people can be interesting too, and not just in this sort of we make a Liam Neeson movie for all the dads to feel important about themselves. There is there is interesting stuff that happens in mon- in mundane life, yeah. and those are some of the things that I want to understand. I want to explore with the Crimson Fly. The idea is that going back to the question. I have a plan for where this is all going to go. Even past volume two, past volume three, I have ideas as to where things are going to take the character. And with that earlier strip, I didn't have that. 
And so that's why that crash and burn. It's almost kind of like with your project now versus maybe then is that there's a really solid foundation of an identity about like what you're aiming for and kind of knowing who you are and like where you want to go like that. Mm. Just uh, uh, having that sort of not figured out, but Mm -hmm. just kind of but being aware of it as well, too. So then you don't have to be uh, reactionary. Exactly. And so now that I have this plan, it's just, oh, we'll just follow steps on the plan. Follow the theme, more or less, is how can I deconstruct superheroes while still making them fun? And what am I trying to say in this particular issue? So an issue one is basically real life does not work like a comic book. An issue two is basically this is how your powers work. They're not, you're not going to immediately master them. You're just going to have them and you're going to figure out how they work and you're going to learn from what you did in the last one. And then issue three is essentially how does this one choice that you are about to make going to impact the rest of this story? And then issue four is Okay, well, remember all that that stuff that we did in issues one, two, and three? Now here's the final exam. You got to put it all together and just having that theme. That's really nice. Do you, do you, each like major story arc, do you, do you kind Mm -hmm. of like take that in stride and see what you need to do as you go? Or do you go about each story like per volume or? It's a little bit of both. Um, When I can, I mean, everything is mostly all planned out. So it's like, so when I do drop hints of like, remember this, remember that, remember this? It flows naturally. But at the same time, when I'm looking back, I'm thinking, hmm, well, what can I take from the last one and dump in this one? So like in issue three, when he's confronting the store owner and they're they're talking about like, well, wait, why didn't you just call the cops? And I'm like, this is a perfect opportunity to grab panels from issues one and two to illustrate exactly why he didn't call the cops. Which if you're reading it for the first time, you're like, oh, that's pretty interesting. But if you're reading it a long-term reader, you're like, oh, oh, oh. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but... Well played, good sir. Nice. I know those moments are so gratifying when you go back and you're like, oh, 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 I see it was there the whole time. <laughs> but of course, the flip to that is that you want people to, to be this accessible universe and not so much. And I find that ex- accessibility isn't hard. You just have to set it up that way. Can, like, can you say what you mean when you when you say accessibility? So one of the things that I do is I will read manga summaries online. And what always happens is there's, there'll be this five-page paragraph of the world building. In the, in the beginning, there were two gods, and then they made this world, and then they fought, and then they decided not to fight anymore, and then they gave the people magic, and then people had magic, and then they fought, and there was these wars, and then one side won, and then it became a totalitarian government. And then the last <laughs> sentence of that, of that blurb is, this is the story of this one kid who can use magic, who is an avatar of the gods. I'm like, I don't care about all the blurb, just start me off with the kid. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. How do you feel about switching gears a bit and talking about animation? <laughs> Touch so much amazing stuff yeah. with all your like story and character insight. It's brilliant. It's really good. Oh man, animation, I could like geek out about that forever, about everything. Right. Well, let me start you with this one. What do you feel has influenced your animation style on The Crimson Ply? Um, Japan. Japan. Yeah. Let's see if I can dig up my influence map because that pretty much... But basically, Japan, um, Japan animation, more or less, has kind of just a uh, or anime. Yeah, we thought we could sense a bit of that anime flavor mm-hmm, in there. Mm-hmm. Like, um, it's great. Oh, Dragon Ball Z. Yes, mm. 
Sorry, really fast. Who's your favorite character? Oh, Goku. It's always going to be Goku. He's... With Krillin as a top second. Nice. Very, very nice. I like it. Like, I usually go for those sort of like idealized... Like I'm I'm very much a main character person. I will usually vote, root, put the main character as the top of my favorites list unless they are just that unlikable. Uh-huh. Uh, so like if you ask me who my favorite Mario character is, it's going to be Mario. Well, actually, it's, it bounces between Mario and Luigi. But with Dragon Ball Z, there was just... That was my first anime that I got into. And there was just such a snappiness in their posing that I just like, ah, I got to do that. (laughs) What's great about their style is I'm not sure if it's because they do it on on twos and threes or because that's how they pose out. But everything is it's not about the individual, the motion, the flow Mm -hmm. that you get in like Disney and really most Western animation. It's about the about capturing that one dynamic pose. And stringing together a series of dynamic poses and snapshots so that if you were to pause the video at any given moment, everything looks like something out of a comic panel. Mm. At least for shonen anime. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Yeah. Like, you look at all the, like, especially, like, from the start of Dragon Ball Z to maybe, like, the end of the Boo saga. And mm-hmm. in particular, like, especially, like, uh, the Frieza through Cell sagas. I think I love the Cell saga so much. But just all of that screams dynamism everywhere like yeah. whether it's the environment or yeah like the action poses mm. yeah i mean it's it's really efficient storytelling it's like getting across as much as you can with as little as you can mm-hmm. yeah and it, it brings to mind that quote of it's something like art is taking away as much as you can and it's still being readable or understandable. I've completely messed up that quote, but it's something like that, you know? Yeah, where basically, if you can do everything, what can't you do? Yes. Um, I think, because uh, it's not, I don't think it's the quote that you're talking about. It's, it's along the same ideas. Um, there's a there's a video series, uh, Every Frame of Painting, by a guy named Tony Zhu, Z-H-O-U. Uh, oh, the best. I love that guy. I love that series. And he has one for uh, David Fincher, where David Fincher talks about what he doesn't do. Right. And in terms of, like, putting things on a tripod in terms of uh, cutting. It's, it's, I haven't seen that one in a while, but basically if you can do everything, what can't you do? Mm-hmm. Which actually brings to mind something that I, that has become a, a, a truism for me, my life. If necessity uh, is the mother of invention, i.e. we make things because we need them. Like you, if you, if you need to hammer something in, you make a hammer. Um, you need to write something, we invented pencils. We need to get someplace fast, we need cars. So if necessity is the mother of, of invention, then limitation is the mother of creativity. That mm. is the truth. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, my favorite example of this, and granted, I'm not, it's mostly anecdotal. I don't remember where I heard this, but um, you think back to like the 8-bit sprite of Mario. It's been said that he, the reason why he has a mustache is so that you can differentiate his nose from his mouth and the rest of his body where he, where the chin begins and ends. Really? Um, yeah. That's fascinating. And that's so true. I had never thought of it like that before. But I mean, even looking at the rest of his design, it all makes sense. When he wears coveralls and he's facing forward in that forward sprite, the coveralls break away where his arms begin. The gloves signify where his hands are. The hat signifies where his head is and where his ears start and all that jazz. So all the elements of his his eight bit design signify this is how this is how this person is built together in a way that's easy to understand and easy to uh, recognize. Wow. <laughs> I didn't realize my mind could be blown this many times. <laughs> it's such a short duration. It's it's crazy. Hideo Kojima when they when they went to go make Metal Gear. He, there was supposed to be a shooter, sort of like a Rambo and a Contra. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the MSX gaming computer couldn't handle that many people online. Solution? 
turn it into a stealth game. Nice. Oh man. And it had such, and it seems like too, whenever those limitations are implemented, Lord and I have talked a lot mm. about limitations that have been implemented in uh, shows and games and just everything. And it, yeah. it almost always seems like, if not just always, that mm -hmm. the end product is way stronger than what it was before when all that stuff is available to you. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, yeah. It means that you have to be really selective mm -hmm. yeah, about what it is that you actually want to communicate or show or, you know, what kind of vibe you want to put across. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because usually when you can, when you can, you find that when somebody has done everything, it's because they've already started with those limitations and just slowly taking the rules out. And so now they can do anything. Mm -hmm. But even then they have rules within rules within rules. Um, like uh, Mario and Luigi, they do the, the RPG games and their their main rule is that Mario always has to be the star. And what, what you might think for Luigi is like, oh, well, what are you going to do with Luigi? Suddenly his entire arc is about be trying to become the star and getting people to simply recognize him. Mm -hmm. So Mario does a jump like, oh man, that's that famous Mario jump. That's amazing. It's great. But then Luigi does the exact same thing. And you're like, who are you? Are you a fanboy? <laughs> and there's all of that humor that comes from Luigi just trying to be recognized for being the brother part of the Mario Brothers. I forget what the comic is called, but there's a... Oh, I, I think it's called What About What About Luigi? Oh, Everybody Hates Luigi? <laughs> yeah, that's the one. And it's such an endearing comic. And it's all about Luigi is the star. And it's all about he's always like either second best or like second rate or even kind of lower and he's just he becomes such like an empathetic character and he's so sweet that you just like relate to because he just he feels normal and he feels like you and he's like i, I don't know in, in a way at least uh for me he almost feels more relatable or a little more uh emotionally relatable than like mario, mario. would be yeah mm. and it's funny because that's permeated all of his uh gameplay like not not just in terms of the the mario games but just all across the board like one of my favorite things to do with in Super Smash Brothers is play as Luigi and just do all of these crazy wacky moves. Like his dash attack is just this flail. It's like ah! <laughs> dash attack, <laughs> or or the green missile where everybody's like, you know that doesn't work, right? And then the one time you get the misfire, I'm like, what? <laughs> and it's just so fun to screw with people because what they well, okay, what can we do to make Luigi different from Mario? Well, if Mario is the perfect standout hero. Luigi is just this guy who, when he when he can be bothered to try hard at all, when he's not being scared out of his wits, he just goes balls to the wall crazy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like his uh, his jump punch doesn't work the way it's supposed to, and when it does, and it goes hor when it goes wrong, it goes horribly wrong. Where he's like, whereas Mario's just like, oh no, I'm falling in a falling position, but I'm, it's clearly still controlled. Luigi's like, well, this didn't work. I'm just gonna fall on my head until I get until I land. <laughs> <laughs> and just all of those limitations of being Luigi, just they just make him such a more dynamic character than Mario. Mm -hmm. It's true. Like to, to the point where if I was going to make a Mario Brothers movie, the protagonist would be Luigi. Yeah. I'd love a Luigi movie. That sounds awesome. Joy talking with Colin. He has so much knowledge, it's unbelievable. <laughs> He's fabulous. It was a really fun interview, and I just love his energy too. Yes. Great. <laughs> I also really love how he just keeps it simple. He has a vision of the ideal setup or scenario or ideal resources that he would have to make 
his ideal version of the Crimson Flight. But the fact that he doesn't necessarily have those resources, he doesn't let that stop him from making the Crimson Flight as it is. Yeah. I just think that's just super good and really exciting. It's absolutely wonderful. I, yeah, that power through attitude of his, I love that it always just keeps him moving forward. And I also just have to say from a personal standpoint, I really love that he, again, he obviously plans out his comic, of course, mm-hmm. and he has his process. I really appreciate that he doesn't overplan anything, though, and he's able to just roll with the punches. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, I, as a as a chronic overthinker, I love how organic his process seems to be, and I just really appreciate it. Colin, you rock, dude. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. It just stops it from being too rigid or constricting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just going to be what it's going to be. Yeah, exactly. Well, we can't wait to see the new revamped Crimson Fly Colin. Mm-hmm. And as we mentioned, the link for that very sneak peek is on the blog post for this episode. So you can find it at diyanimation.show forward slash DIYA16. So thank you, Colin, for sharing it because it's super good. It's fabulous. Now, you may be asking yourself, where can I see all the other Crimson Flight things? And do we have links for you? To start, you can head over to the main website, thecrimsonfly.com, to check out Colin's side comic, The Crimson Fly Fly Bits. And if you're wanting to catch up on the Crimson Fly archives, just head on over to Colin's YouTube channel, Skipperwing, that's S-K-I-P-P-E-R-W-I-N-G, and make your way over to the Crimson Fly all-silent playlist, and you'll be able to run through the entirety of the Crimson Fly archives. They are a blast to watch. Highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Plus, while you're there, you'll be able to check out his other playlists for Crimson Fly videos with commentary, drawing videos, some of his fan animations, just a whole lot of stuff. So go over there. Have fun. It's a blast. I love it. (laughs) It's true. It's so good. Colin is also very active on his Patreon, where you can find lots of art posts there as well, which is patreon.com forward slash skipperwing. And be sure to check out our blog post for a full rundown of all Colin's links. We've just grabbed them all together in one handy place. And that is diyanimation.show forward slash DIYA16. Thank you all so much again for joining us. It's a blast as always. Yeah, it's great to be back with you. Join us next time for part two of Colin's interview where we discuss fan art as a building block to creative projects, Colin's top tips for engaging action choreography, and of course, the one most vital thing Colin thinks a DIY animator needs. You can catch this part two next month on Wednesday, February 20th. Yeah. In the meantime, to stay up to date with the DIY Animation Show or to drop us a line, find us on social media. On Instagram, at DIYA Show. And on Twitter, at DIYA Show. We've also got the Facebook page and we're on SoundCloud and iTunes. So if you search the DIY Animation Show on any of those, you'll be able to find us. And of course, the website, DIYanimation.show. Until next time, follow your hearts and have fun animating. Yeah. We'll see you all in part two. See you real soon. Yeah. And part two. We'll be waiting there for you. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, everybody. We'll catch you later. The DIY Animation Show is an indie production from your hosts, Jessica Dahl and Lauren Morse. Our theme music was provided by Azure Flux. (laughs) 
subscribe at diyanimation.show. If you liked this podcast, maybe you'll enjoy more art and story podcasts from our friends at the Oatly Academy of Visual Storytelling, featuring insights from some of the most inspiring voices in animation, games, biz effects, comics, and children's books. Find them at friendsofdiya.com. We'll see you next time. Bye! Yeah, no, that's, that's your choice too. That's the thing too. That's the great thing about, about the world. It's all open to interpretation for the most part. Mm-hmm. I, I have a feeling that nobody can really argue with gravity. Yeah, gravity <laughs> would be a hard one. <laughs> that's, uh, yep, I agree. That, that would be a hard one to try to knock against. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I'm actually conducting this interview by floating. What? So. What? what? Oh, Got that one, Seth. <laughs> Again, mind is blown up. <laughs> <laughs>